Hi everyone. We had a little technical hiccup in the recording for this week's episode, so apologies for the reduced audio quality on Tim's mic. Show's still great. Please enjoy. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined as always by my good friend Jem Gilbert. Hi Jem. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. So we are into um, the third, the third, (laughs) uh, the third Jamaican uh, episode, third of five. we're reflecting further on dub. So, uh, Jem, why don't you kind of introduce some of the thematics to us? So what we thought we would do today is go through a sequence of records, uh, probably a longer sequence than usual, which shows the influence of dub on a range of different musical genres and styles. And predictably, once we started making our list, we got to at least 10 tracks that we needed to play by the time we got to the very beginning of the 1990s. So we're not even going into drum and bass and dubstep at this stage. I guess that will come at some point. And really, we just wanted to explore some of the sonic uses and sonic influences of dub uh, on some of its immediate successes and some of the music that was immediately touched by it in the relatively early phase. So we're going to look at the way in which dub production influenced early disco productions, how it influenced some sort of punk and post-punk music, uh, early electronic music, early house, through to the British sort sort of psychedelic dance music of the late 80s and early 90s that went along with the first wave of rave culture. And we're looking at the ways in which a whole range of effects that we associate with dub, uh, remixing, heavy, heavily emphasizing bass and percussion, dropping out instruments, creating a certain kind, a certain stripped back, fairly minimal sound in some cases, use of things we're all used to think associating with dub, like reverb and echo, all these things constitute uh, techniques which are really important for a whole range of different musics and we've sort of joked that every every show we do from now on will to some extent be one that comes after the dub show because i don't think that anything we could do now and we could do 10 episodes on just this topic and we still wouldn't exhaust arguably the influence of dub and the echoes of dub But we want to illustrate the point, really, uh, with some some tracks from genres that emerge relatively soon after dub reggae first comes on the scene. Great. Um, So, yeah, we are going to try and get through, you know, more, uh, at least double the number of tracks that we do normally. So there'll be a bit of a different rhythm to what we do, or at least we're going to try and have a, uh, introduce a slightly different rhythm to what we do and just kind of get through more music. Uh, and just open things out, as Jem was, was, was saying. Um, so I think the first track that we were going to uh, listen to um, is, and discuss uh, is a Walter Gibbons 
uh, mix of first choices, let no man put asunder. And this was a mix that was re uh, released as part of uh, a, a, an album titled Disco Madness, uh, released on Soul in 1979. So why don't we begin by listening to uh, an extract from that record? So it's you know there's something really I mean this I think we're going to have to dedicate uh, you know at least a whole show to to Walter Gibbons. This is yeah. incredibly. I mean maybe maybe even who knows how we'll, we'll deal with Walter Gibbons and you know, who is also one of many incredibly interesting and influential and progressive kind of figures uh, who kind of made his name in the New York scene really. Um, as as many listeners will know, Walter, you know, alongside Tom Walton, was really the most influential remixer of uh, the 1970s in terms of 12-inch uh, uh, disco remix culture. And when we think about the, uh, and it's kind of worth saying, I guess, from the outset that um, I mean, Tom did it did it first, but Walter was arguably uh, the more adventurous uh, of the of the two remixers. I mean, absolutely sure that Tom Walton would agree with that um, but just to kind of think about remixing just very briefly the, the very idea of remix culture we've already touched on this when we, we've been discussing uh, the, the emergence of dub reggae culture in Jamaica the very idea of the remix is already kind of tapping into a sort of dub aesthetic and sensibility because it revolves around these ideas or you know well primarily subtraction uh, although with the use of overdubs, uh, there is also kind of addition as well. But the main experience of the, of the New York dance from the 70s was to kind of illustrate or reveal the way in which often um, creating more space in a track, stretching it out, placing a greater influence, uh, greater emphasis on a fewer number of instruments could kind of accentuate it and kind of excite the dance floor more and, and produce something that was felt to be more experimental. So Walter was really at the for forefront of all of this. He was uh, uh, the DJ at Galaxy 21, um, <clears throat> where he was had developed a reputation for developing a particularly percussive sound. Also, uh, Francois Kevorkian, who arrived in New York from France in 1975, was got his first job uh, drumming alongside Walter Gibbons and trying to kind of keep up with him. And uh, with, with, he told me in an, in an interview uh, that, you know, it was like, it felt like there were, you know, drums for days uh, in this particular, in, when Walter was DJing. Uh, there was one really famous mix uh, that Walter would do, but there's really one of many in which he would take the break uh, from Happy Song and would extend it. Uh, so it became this kind of long, uh, percussive mix. And so, you know, already with the emphasis going on on that, and Herc was doing, um, this, DJ Cool Herc was doing the same thing around the same time. We're already, again, looking at this kind of, this, this kind of um, emphasis on subtraction, stripping things down. And this is really kind of a, a dub approach, if you like. Um, I mean, there's a whole long story here, and we haven't, we, we, we're not going to try and get into it all. 
safe to say that Walter was invited by Ken Carey at Southsole Records to become the first DJ to remix a commercially available 12-inch single, um, which was Double Exposure's 10%, which came out in 1976. <clears throat> I wouldn't say that that particularly had a, a dub aesthetic. It was more around kind of longevity and just kind of and flow, really. Um, but a couple of years later, um, so again, sort of cut a, quite a long and interesting story, very short. Um, Ken Carey uh, then asked Walter Gibbons to become the first DJ to remix an, 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 uh, a, a entire album, and that was released as Disco Madness in 1979. Um, and um, the, in this album, Walter really started to explore something that was kind of, you know, uh, approach something that was kind of you know, full on, full on dub music in in some of the tracks, uh, and in particular this kind of record um, by first choice, uh, "Let No Man Put Asunder." Um, it was a already had been appeared. This track had already appeared on the first choice album. It wasn't. It hadn't become a particularly big um, party hit, big uh, discotheque hit in the in the city or elsewhere. So the choice of the record itself was interesting. It has quite uh, religious lyrics that kind of was you know appropriate because Walter was already had just recently uh, become a born again Christian. Uh, it's another interesting story to maybe explore another time. It was kind of quite a significant moment. Um, so, um, but as Ken Carey told me in an interview, this was the first time that a label released an album of mixes by a single remix. Uh, Ken, Ken Carey said every DJ was inspired by Walter. And on this uh, album, uh, and this track in particular, uh, Walter kind of introduced this kind of, this spatialized aesthetic. It was as if a lot of the kind of the... Um, instrumentation other than the drums which are very foregrounded and and the bass it's as if a lot of the other instrumentation is almost entirely stripped out of the record to the point where it kind of has a, a kind of somewhat fan, uh, ghost-like presence um, and just as a so it's an example of how I'm not really sure by the way if, if Walter was listening to Jamaican dub reggae um, he died many years ago of, of AIDS and um, and I don't know of in, you know, hardly any interviews that were published with him, just one by Stephen Hardy that doesn't really allude to this. Um, so it could be an example in part of, of just DJ culture and New York City dance floor culture, just sharing some of the same values that drove Jamaican dub reggae culture and finding different ways or and overlapping ways to articulate them. Um, so I'm not sure there's a way to resolve that particular question but this record, incidentally, did go on to become hugely influential, uh, in particular in Chicago. It became a, a kind of favourite for Frankie Knuckles, who was playing at the Warehouse, um, this loft-inspired venue opened by Robert Williams in 1977. Um, and um, this, 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 it was this specifically the remix rather than the original, which was particularly popular um, in that in that party and it's partly interesting because there are some ways in which this anticipates house music as well or what house music will become it's kind of taking what disco does but stripping things down um and so you know there's there's um, a way in which this record itself forms a bridge between jamaican dub and what becomes house music yeah well it's really interesting well i mean you did uh 
you did those liner notes years ago for that Walter Gibbons mm. compilation, didn't you? I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I got completely obsessed with, it was Walter, David and Arthur Russell. Those were the three figures in New York. I mean, there's more now, but for the longest time it was those three that completely compelled me. Well, it was really persuasive argument you made uh, years ago now, I thought, that Walter Gibbons is this tremendously important figure. He's a sort of Lee Perry of New York and of disco. And and, it, and to, to a large extent, he really anticipates a lot of house music as well, I think. I think there's this sense in which disco, the relationship between house and disco is sort of varies with every way that it's told and every time that it's told but gibbons really gibbons's productions they really seem to anticipate house music very clearly and that, that that emphasis on percussion and bass being more important than the melodic elements more important than the vocal elements and he's really a tremendously important figure and it's really it's hard i mean it's clearly not just a coincidence that this is all happening at the same time but it's very intriguing the fact that we don't even know if he was listening to dub at at all and it could just be obviously he was and obviously it was an influence but it might just be that well this is a fairly obvious thing to do once you've got multi-track recording like once multi-track recording starts to happen with these fairly rhythmic kinds of music, it's a fairly obvious thing to do to produce in, to play around with the instrumental tracks, to play around with the rhythm tracks. But either way, there's a really fascinating resonance, and it is. Um, I'm quite yes. sure that I'm quite sure that with the, with the first with the first round of remixes that came through in sort of '75 and '76, and re-edits had already started a bit before then. Um, this is what DJs were doing and they were doing it because they had already seen how dancers were responding in particular to the break. Yeah. Um, And there was this kind of, it was, I mean, in the Arthur Russell book, I started it, you know, this is just that all of this is an interconnected form of minimalism in a sense. And then what becomes post, I mean, in a way disco then becomes sort of post minimalist because it has minimalist uh, underpinnings or leanings. I mean, funk has that as well, but then it goes for the crescendos and the strings and the, the expression, if you like, but there's always a sense of minimalism, and it's. it's I'm sure, we go on to discuss this in terms of punk as well. So the, the principles are shared, um, and then the question is, well, when does when do people kind of actually hear dub and find that kind of particularly interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, part of the story we're going to tell today. So at some point by the mid '80s, it becomes widely understood, at least in and in terms of the vocabulary that's used that. If you're doing this sort of production, whether it's in house music or pop music or any other genre, you're doing something that's like dub. You're doing a kind of dub. That's part of the story we're telling today, I think, a little bit. And but that's not. It's not clear that that's the case at all. Well, it's not. It's clear. It's clearly not the case explicitly. Well, there is one interesting. I guess one interesting point to make is that um, I thought this might be a bit too much detail, but there the sort of first disco dub record. Um, that kind of was recorded in the UK, but the, and we could have played this one, of course, but then got got to be circulated in New York. And I remember reading and even citing a Tom Moulton review of this record. that was a generous review. Is the Disco Dub Band's uh, 1976 cover of For the Love of Money. <laughs> Thank you. 
we do know that that's a kind of disco dub record that starts to circulate and foregrounds a number of these aesthetic values. So it's, it's already the case that a stripped down aesthetic, you know, like Herc doing kind of mixing between the breaks or Walter doing the same thing. It's already started, but the, but the fact that dub can be imprinted and named on kind of a, basically a disco record does get to be established in 76. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah. I don't really, I've never really known, really understood what the um, progenesis of the disco dub band was. Or... It's a UK, it's a UK um, recording, and I'm pretty sure that there's kind of a, the producer of the record or of the label that released the record was Jamaican or had Jamaican connections. Yeah, because because a, a reggae artist would adopt, would, would adapt and adopt. Um, of other genres really quickly like anything that was popular anything that was in the charts anywhere in the world it seemed they would kind of connect to mm-hmm. so it's not surprising that that would be coming out of jamaica or, or, or jamaican diasporic networks mm-hmm. and the thing i'm less clear about is at what point people in new york are really conscious of by what point in new, are people in new york really conscious of dub like very what that we know of very widely i guess that's what that's not till about 1980 really is it i it's just really hard to tell. As I say, they would have kind of, they would have known. I'm pretty sure that most of them would have, would have heard this record. But the, there was something about dub reggae in New York being reasonably marginal and not heavily associated with what with the, the dance scene, the, the main party scene, the, the downtown underground party scene. Certainly not the midtown party scene. There was this venue called Negril, open on Second Avenue. Uh, I'm not entirely sure of the year it opened. But it started to get involved with kind of hosting Africa, Bambata and other Bronx DJs and therefore became the centre for early hip hop in 1981. But I think the venue had already been open for a, a couple of years at that particular point. So, but it wasn't something that was, you know, it was, I think there, there may have been, I mean, one of the ways that that started to get to be popularised was when punks started going along to to it because there was this kind of connection as well, again, well, go on to talk about between punk and dub reggae that kind of started to happen in the late 1970s probably um, yeah exactly. so, there was, so there was that connection but i don't know the extent to which it because because in some sort of way a lot of dub dub reggae was just a bit too down tempo for what was going on on the new york dance floor really uh, and there weren't that many parties that were staying open long enough for that bit at the end of the party so maybe introduce some of that this is why david's loft which was obviously its house party um you know, David again didn't play loads of dub reggae, but he would sort of play some black uhuru, and he would do that. If he did it, he wouldn't do it at the peak of the party. That just wasn't David's approach. But he would do it potentially at the beginning, but more probably at the end. Uh, these parties that went for you know went on till midday and beyond. Um, yeah. Okay. And anyway, I'm breaking our rule and talking too much between these these long list of records. <laughs> but the um the as you said, I mean, one of the ways in which dub reached wider audiences, and this is true both in the States and in the UK, was through the association between uh, the dub and reggae s- scenes and the sound system scenes and punk rock from the moment when punk rock sort of exploded into public consciousness at the end of 1976. And we could play various uh, tracks illustrating this. Uh, and one thing that was really striking quite early on in in the history of that relationship is of course the first wave of punk rock bands are playing this 
it, this kind of uh, highly energetic garage rock, which is basically sound. It sounds like the Ramones, uh, the Saints from Brisbane, like, and it's influenced by people like the Stooges. But it's, it doesn't really sound like the Stooges. It sounds like teenagers who've been listening to the Stooges and sort of want to make a comparable energetic racket but don't have the musical skill or the studio access to really do it in the same way and it's all very very different aesthetically from reggae or dub it's faster it's based on strumming and guitars at very high speed i mean faster than anybody could could maintain kind of a, a great deal of musical accuracy and and still keep up and you know, very sim, very simple, often almost kind of monotonous rhythms, just you know, beat out very quickly on the drums and the bass, and sort of simple, screamed lyrics. It's all very high in the register. It's very kind of high octane, high adrenaline, high notes. It's all very much, a, and it's an, it is an aesthetic of, as the Velvet Underground famously put it, being uptight. And reggae, by contrast, is all about slowing things down. It's about the bass. It's about being irie. It's about being relaxed. It's about smoking herb. And so initially, the relationship between punk and reggae seems to be that the punks are sort of in awe of reggae. They're sort of in awe of the Rastas, and they love them. And and famously, the only kind of music that people like John Lydon would actually talk about in interviews was reggae. They really weren't even, they just weren't really even interested in sort of rock music of the kind that they were sort of playing. But well, they they really admired them. But it took a few years before you could really hear a very strong sonic influence of reggae on punk bands, just because they didn't have access to the studios, they didn't have the musical techniques even to be able to put into effect anything like a meaningful reggae influence. And it's really around sort of 79, 80 that you start to hear this influence coming through uh, for those reasons. And probably the most striking and the most famous early example of that is the Slits' first album. The Slits, uh, the iconic feminist punk band, one of the great feminist punk bands, um, based in London, uh, they were all people who had been around the sort of Sex Pistols gig scene, and but also uh, at least one of them was always heavily involved with reggae culture. Ari Up, who would end up becoming a dancehall star in Jamaica, and. What's interesting with the slits is if you listen to their very early stuff, I think now there are some reissued kind of early demos and things. But for years, the only way you could really hear this was on the Peel Sessions, the John Peel Sessions recordings that were released in 78, I think, maybe 77. Then what you would hear is a very noisy, very angular. Already, actually, this music was formerly much more experimental than what people like the Sex Pistols were doing. It's always been really interesting to me. The, the slit, if you listen to like, if, if you're a real archivist of punk and you listen to these early Peel sessions, it's the Slits and Susie and the Banshees. I think they're sort of the first post-punk bands and they're the first bands coming straight out of the punk scene, but they're trying to do something which is formally more experimental than just imitating the Ramones, kind of reactionary guitar thrash. And... What they are doing is they are trying to bring to bear something of a kind of reggae sensibility on the, their sound. Formally, they're using sort of ska-type guitar um, playing rather rather than just thrashing it. Um, so using so playing sort of rhythmic chords held quite 
hard against the fretboard rather than just thrashing it hard. And they're trying to make the bass a bit more prominent sometimes. But the real fruit of these experiments is the, is on this record. And I think it was on this record, the slits cut is usually talked about as a post-punk record because if you listen to this, it doesn't sound very punk at all. It's produced by Dennis Bovell, who is and was and remains, I, I would say, probably the iconic black British dub producer. And you can really hear on the track that this is it's formally very influenced by reggae in the in the way that the song is structured and arranged but also the production is is all based on like turning down the distortion on the guitars turning the guitars down very low in the mix so that you the drums and bass become a bit more prominent it doesn't have any of the heaviness we would associate with dub but it does deploy that that logic of 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 subtraction Mm -hmm. and of reduction and it creates this sense of space in the music which is very very different from a punk rock record for, uh, uh, as you would have expected to hear just a year earlier really uh very and it's very very striking so let's hear a bit of the, that this is shoplifting from cut So there it is. That's really sort of a classic example, I think, of sort of punk reggae. What do you what do you think of that? Yeah, no, it's uh, it it certainly is, and it's it's really interesting example of the way in which um, post punk was beginning to develop, and the way in which, in particular, kind of it, it just developed this really powerful relationship with with dub reggae music. Um, I mean, there was this kind of there was a shift was seemed to be taking place, and this record is part of that shift where the the reference point within what we might very loosely reference as you know being forms of you know white guitar led musicianship, you know, which were generally called rock, generally called rock music, and rock music had obviously been kind of very focused on a certain sort of blues and rhythm and blues uh, uh, lineage and heritage. That it uh, that it celebrated and sought to emulate, and part of punk punk's kind of energy and uh, reason for for breaking with kind of what the established rock scene kind of it took in the sort of reasonably early nineteen seventies, um, arguably even even a bit earlier, depending where you want to start dating the sound, was because it it did sort of seem to to want to break, or at least strong elements within the punk scene wanted to break with this kind of with developing a self-consciously sort of black sound or sound that grew out of this black lineage and and positioned, you know, a number of kind of black musicians as, at its icon, as, as kind of being iconic. And um, and so punk, punk sort of did that in the way that you, you also described the early punk scene. And what's interesting in this moment is that when it does reconnect with black music, it's doing it with with this with Caribbean music. It's not doing it straightforwardly with American music anymore. It's not doing it with what you might expect, which would be kind of soul music uh, or funk, you know, or, or disco. There is there are actually kind of a, a significant number of you know illusions and uses of, of funk music within the post punk scene. But I think it's just interesting to kind of reflect on that or mention that 
the the the, the reference point you know becomes not the not blues not rhythm and blues but uh, not soul for sure certainly not disco which was kind of you know uh, well that's another story but but indeed Jamaican dub yeah well that's a whole I mean that's a really interesting point actually because I mean really from this moment onwards into about the mid eighties. There's a lot of British music, including just very mainstream commercial pop, for which reggae is the, is the sort of meta reference point, the formal reference point, rather than uh, blues derived music. You're right. That's a really good point. I mean, you could say this about people like Culture Club. I was just going to say, you know, yeah, indeed, do you really want to hurt me as being kind of completely? Yeah, you can say that, and this a... is really, it's very, very. Um, it's very ubiquitous. And also in terms of the, the, the way in which it's to some extent the turn to reggae is what drives the emergence of post-punk out of punk. I mean, you could even say that uh, arguably the most influential sort of officially designated post-punk band, Joy Division, The Order. I mean, the thing which is most distinctive sonically about Joy Division and then New Order, famously, is Peter Hook's bass. It's it's the bass. Uh, it's the bass playing these very simple but very memorable melodic phrases, becoming the kind of central focus of, of musical attention. And that is influenced by reggae, even though they're not playing sort of reggae licks and not using reggae uh, and using um to sort of reggae rhythms. There, it is still um, a direct influence, I think. And then, so another band that had been really heavily influenced by reggae, had always advertised their affiliation to reggae, um, was The Clash. Uh, one of the an er, great early Clash record I really love is called White Man in Hammersmith Palais. It's about being a white reggae fan in London in the mid-70s. It's a really interesting track, actually. It's, it is a sort of, it has a sort of slow reggae rhythm, but it's sonically, it's mostly a, a punk rock record. It's really interesting. But the Clash, I think, probably most significant thing about the Clash is they were the first of the first wave of British punk rock bands to last long enough to build up enough of a commercial base to be able to get access to studios for any length of time. Um, and maybe that's part of the basis for the record you're going to introduce now. Yeah, um, so we're going to talk about. I mean, there were. I mean, one thing to kind of mention in passing is that there's so much music that starts to circulate in the late 1970s, in the late 1970s, but then it just explodes in the early 1980s. It's obviously something I've written about pretty extensively in the last book, which covered New York City 80 to 83. Um, there's just so much music that incorporates elements of, of dub reggae, and in particular, dub. Uh, and it becomes one of these kind of key elements that enters into this mix of, you know, post-punk or part, uh, art punk, uh, early rap and hip hop and post-disco uh, sounds um, that start to swirl around New York and kind of seem to, in many cases, uh, contain elements of all of these sounds and more in any single recording. So we could have spoken, we could have discussed it, kind of just like scores upon scores of records and it's, you know, it's, a, it's regrettable the number we are leaving out, but we will, of course, come back to many of these. And the one that we did uh, decide to, to focus on a little bit now is uh, The Clash's 
Magnificent Dance, which was released as the 12-inch mix uh, to the single Magnificent Seven. So let's start off by having a a listen to the 12-inch Magnificent Dance. So yeah, as, as you rightly say, Jen, the Clash were kind of you know had this strong kind of kind of affinity and connection with with dub reggae um, from from an early point, at least from an, an, at least from 1978 with the release of White Man in Hammersmith Palais, which it did have this kind of uh, guitar that followed a kind of reggae offbeat, uh, at least within it. Um, and the following year, the, when the Clash recorded London Call, London Calling. Uh, this was the point, uh, I think, when they started to introduce a much more explicit mix of sounds into um, into the recording studio. So, in, in particular, combining punk with reggae and ska, and and rockabilly as well as kind of a number of other traditional rock and roll elements as well. And it did have this kind of energy that kind of marks it out, but also a range that started to indicate where you know. The most progressive end of, of music in London and also New York City at this point was was heading. So, a, a magnificent seven uh, was released on the next album that the Clash released, uh, which came out in 1980, which was Sandinista, uh, which was obviously a reference to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, um, the kind of a, a party that was formed to kind of root out U.S. imperialism as well as establish socialism that would be loosely modelled on. The the Cuban Revolution. So the Clash were kind of, you know, uh, a, a famously um, committed sort of left-wing um, out lineup with with kind of anarchist tendencies, and they were kind of highlighting this on this on this album with its particular title. Uh, that album, like like um, London Calling, also kind of included elements of you know funk, reggae, jazz, uh, dub rhythm and blues, even something that was kind of more akin to kind of disco, uh, as well as some rap music. Um, Clash were notable for being one of the first rock bands, to, if not the first, to start integrating raps into into their into their tracks, into a number of their recordings, I should say. And um, Magnificent Seven appeared on this album, and then the 12-inch version <clears throat> uh, was released in April 1981. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's obviously this this extended workout, uh, which is just revolves really around this extraordinary baseline and a very uh, quite intricate, uh, propulsive, uh, and you know moving set of percussive sounds. That again, in its basic structure, kind of alludes to you know the very base basis of the instrumentation used in in dub reggae, when quite often the music is stripped back to the bass and the, and the drums. Um, it was surely the first genre to kind of foreground these two instruments or forms of instrumentation in quite the way that, that dub, dub reggae did. And this appears at the, at the centre of this record, uh, which is kind of almost, you know, it's kind of an, an uh, but it's but unlike dub reggae, it's really designed to be running at 
the tempo enjoyed by a New York City dance floor. Um, That that tempo had slowed down ever so slightly following the backlash of disco. Disco was running pretty regularly, 120 beats and sometimes faster. And in in the aftermath of that, there was a distinctive slowing down of of the BPM. Um, I haven't actually checked the Magnificent uh, Dance to see what it runs at. Uh, if I had to guess, it would be that it's somewhere between 110 and 120. Uh, might not, might not be quite 120. Anyway, it's a dance. It was a dance. It was a dance mix. It was recorded for the. It was recorded for the dance floor. The Clash were becoming completely obsessed with New York City, as a as a city that marked a, a very progressed form of uh, coming together of different sounds and different cultures that could create this hybrid progressive alliance. And they did perform. I think it was in yeah it was in June 1981. They did something like twelve consecutive concerts of Bonds, uh, which is this extraordinary kind of effort. And each for each concert, they had a different band that they admired or that influenced them uh, warm up. And there was a very you know and part of the idea of these of this series of warm up gigs or uh, yeah warm up. Uh, performances was that they would demonstrate the, the range of the sounds that they were interested in, but also the way that these sounds could, could merge, could blend, and also could interconnect. So, so this, the Clash were getting very into into New York as a kind of a, a, you know an advanced kind of city in terms of culture and people and sound, and um, and it was just sort of you know it was a, it was fitting that this record. Uh, Magnificent Dance became just an absolute monster hit in the city. Uh, as one of these records that you know, lots and lots of DJs across the scene were playing. Uh, but it was particularly big, uh, the Paradise Garage, which had constructed this sound system. Of course, put to, constructed by Richard Long uh, in close association with Larry Levan. The, um, and we'll come back to talk about sound systems in a, in a later series. Uh, but it was this sound system that had un- unprecedented levels, at least in New York terms um, and possibly beyond, uh, had unprecedented power as well as accuracy. Uh, and this record just became the kind of the uh, you know the biggest record there, really. And um, I just remember Fran- Francois Kevorkian, uh, who's this close friend of Larry Levan's and became close with David Mancuso as well, and was this leading remix producer himself. Obviously, remixed Dinosaur L's Go Bang, uh, you know, a few months after this this record came out, all sorts, really. Francois was spending a lot of time at the Paradise Garage. I mean, I should also say, sorry, that Francois went on to become kind of the, arguably the kind of key dub oriented remixer in New York City in the early 1980s. Um, he was always bringing in dub elements, that became his thing. And it was Francois who heard the magnificent dance at the Paradise Garage. And in an interview with me, um, I'm just going to quote him quickly, said, that was the showcase record where reggae met dance music. When we heard The Clash, it was like, what the fuck just dropped in the room? That was Larry's favourite record of the year. Yeah, so there you go, magnificent dance. We're really grateful for everybody who's listening. Um, We're also really grateful for the support we've been getting from patrons. And if you'd like to become one of them, you can easily sign up uh, at patreon.com. There'll be a link in the notes. And if you do that, then you get the benefit of not listening to any more of these begging messages. Uh, We've been really pleased with the support the show's been getting so far. We're basically on track to sort of keep meeting our target of making it viable. 
Uh, but at the same time, you know, it has turned into a project which I think is um, it's probably more satisfying than we expected, but also more work than we expected. It's turning into, I think, a sort of unique intellectual endeavour, really, this podcast. So if you can support it, uh, we'd really be grateful. Um, if you can't, don't worry, keep listening. But you'll have to keep listening to these begging messages. So uh, from the same year, I think, the the original EP would have come out... No, it would have come out the following year, 81. This is Viv, We're going to play Vivienne Goldman's track, Laundrette, from her one, I think her only EP, which was called, I think, Dirty Washing, and was actually produced by... Uh, it was actually produced by... John Lydon and, and Adrian Sherwood and it's not the last we're going to hear from Adrian Sherwood who becomes already arguably one of the dominant British music producers of the 80s and always identified himself very clearly with dub he saw himself as a as a dub producer even when he was mixing sort of mainstream pop and rock Seems like I can't get away from you even in the This track, this Id Laundrette, is one of these. It's one of these tracks that um, is pretty much the only well-known track Vivian Goldman did. I mean, Goldman only had a very brief music career. She was mainly a journalist, and in fact, the past few years, she's mainly been an academic, uh, based in on the East Coast in the States. Maybe, I don't know if she maybe she she did a book. Her last book was only a couple of years ago, a book about uh, women in punk. So maybe we should get her on sometime if she's up for it. Um, but this track gets compiled. It's been reissued at least once. I'm reading that it's been compiled once. I'm sure it's more than once. Yeah, no, it's definitely more than once. I can think of at least two compilations it's been on. And because it is really striking, it's a really, <coughs> it's a really strikingly original piece of music. It's a classic piece of post-punk. You know, it is this, this strange little song about you know, a sort of slice of life scene, like so many songs at this time were. And it's very unique. It's sort of almost genreless. But if you had to give it a genre, again, you'd have to say, well, it's sort of dub. It's sort of early, it's a sort of early e- example of the kind of experimental dub music, which are going, we're going to see more of in the 80s and 90s. And it's quite strikingly similar in some ways to the slit in that, you know, it's women with a quite self-consciously feminist aesthetic looking for a musical language which doesn't owe anything to rock music. I think it probably is significant that this is the moment in the early 80s when <clears throat> the the critique of rock and even what was called rockism is at its most influential in the pages of sections of the music press, which Goldman wrote for, for example. And one thing that is interesting this is a point that gets made by Angela McRobbie in some uh, piece of writing from the 80s, I think, that even though, as we said last time, reggae is technically allied with Rastafarianism and technically, therefore, sexually pretty conservative, because formally it sounds so different from rock music and often much less macho than rock music, it does get heard as a musical vocabulary which people can draw on 
for expressing a kind of distinctively feminine and feminist forms of musical practice. And this is a great example of it, I think. It, it's one of these really unique records. I mean, one of the things I'm really struck by when I listen to records like that, I listen to some of the other feminist post-punk bands like The Raincoats. You even think about people like The Fall. You think about people like the early Scritti Politti. One of the things that's really striking is this is a moment when people like that make records. Whereas most of the time, at most points in history, people like that, and by people like that, I sort of mean people like you and me, Tim, really, sort of, you know, middle-class radical intellectuals. You know, most of the time, we don't make music. At most points in history, we don't make records um, for pretty obvious material, institutional reasons. But this is a moment when... Lots and lots of people do, you know, lots of people make records and lots of those records are still to this day very striking. They're very strikingly products of this moment when it seems like anything is possible and it seems like the appropriate aesthetic vehicle for expressing that sense of possibility is music and often music which is inspired by, informed by the formal possibilities of dub. It's kind of interesting the way in which, again, is another expression of the, the sound that was coming through in this very specific period of the early 1980s, um, which, you know, I guess we'll have to spend, we will spend some time thinking about this, but there's a new forms of fusion come through in this period that contrast with the, uh, you know, the earlier, the fusions we're looking at in the earlier period. Um, but yeah, it, it becomes this kind of, this quite, you know, self, quite um, interesting exploration uh, that has a, you know, quite sp- specific and, you know, foregrounded artistic poetic sensibility uh, that is also playful in the way that dub is playful uh, there is indeed also uh, finding a way to bring dub into it, this kind of sonic mix um, that has all of these other elements and what's kind of interesting about uh, dub in particular is the way that it finds itself it's it just e- it's so easy for dub to mix with other elements um, so yeah, that's a very good point. I think that will be illustrated by several of the tracks we're going to play after this. So we, we're, uh, we're going to next uh, talk about the Tom Tom Club, uh, Genius of Love, uh, which I think is a you know, favourite. I know it's one of your favourite gems, isn't it? You were, yeah. It, this, when I first started playing records out as a DJ, this was the first record that was became like my signature Right, right. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's a wonderful record. It's just a iconic record. Uh, I mean, it's it's yeah, it's just fantastic in so many ways, including its sort of sense of playfulness and, and fun. I think. So, as, as I'm sure most listeners will know, the Tom Tom Club uh, revolved around uh, the Talking Heads musicians Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth, uh, who were husband and, and wife, uh, and on a what I think was a mini sabbatical uh, or a bit of time out uh, from David Byrne and the, the wider Talking uh, Talking Heads lineup, um, they formed the Tom Tom Club. Um, they did this 
largely by uh, going to Compass Point Studios, uh, which Chris Blackwell had opened um, uh, in Bahamas uh, in 1977. He kind of wanted to do it. kind of vaguely remember him saying uh, because he just wanted to create something that was a bit more like a, a you know a cut-off oasis where musicians could kind of be free to develop you know their own ideas maybe he got to the point where he felt that kind of you know being in Kingston Jamaica just put you know too but you know shaped the sound that was going to come through whatever he was doing in too much of a specific way so he got Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare to also form this lineup that became known as the Compass Point All Stars, uh, along with several other musicians, and at some point, uh, Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth um, sort of entered into this this kind of circle of musicians who were spending time at Compass Point Studios, and that's when the Tom Tom Club formed. Um, it's not actually, interestingly. I did check this earlier. I mean, the the list of contributing musicians uh, is not included on the album. Um, cover or artwork is not available on Discogs or anywhere else I could find. So there's a bit of a little bit of a mystery, as to me at least, as to who played on this album. Um, I'm pretty sure, though, that it did include the French African keyboard player Wally Badaru, uh, who later became part of Level 42, and also uh, Tyron Downey, uh, who had been uh, part of the Whalers. And also, maybe most interestingly, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that he was on there. This the King Crimson guitarist Adrian Bellew, I think it's pronounced, who was known for sort of foregrounding effects and noises in his kind of guitar playing. And I think Tina Wayman's sisters also played on this record. So this is very. This was a record that was, in some respects, you know, just you know, born as much out of the you know the downtown sort of party scene. It was kind of already bringing a lot of people's a lot of sounds together as much as whatever was going at Compass Point Studios. Um, but part of what is going on in this record, apart from it being obviously a kind of you know, you know this playful, danceable record that. Um, uh, is that there's this kind of you know this very this quite quite interesting uh, use of dub, in particular I think in the way that the record you know uses a sense of spatiality and then brings you know very playful effects in particular into this space. Um, so that's kind of one of the ways that the the record stands out. Uh, the lyrics also do play tribute to a, an interesting set, set of musicians. George Clinton, Bootsy Collins, Smokey Robinson, Bob Marley, Sly and Robbie, Curtis Blow, uh, Hamilton yeah, Bohannon and, and James yeah, well, Brown. It's partly a programmatic statement, isn't it? Of course, they, exactly. They were the rhythm section from, from Talking Heads. Yes. They were the bass, bassist and the drummer. The, 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 they were the rhythm section. And Talking Heads was the classic example of kind of angular new wave sort of music with a very strong melodies a lot of the time a lot of emphasis on the vocalist and it was this sort of programmatic statement that they could they wanted a kind of music that like funk and reggae place put the put the rhythm section front and center yeah absolutely uh, i mean obviously talking heads was also this kind of pretty stripped down outfit so that yeah, they, yeah. that was already kind of going yeah, on and then in, in 1980 you know i think it was in extremely danceable that, yeah remain in light came out which is one of my yeah. favorite albums i'm sure which one of everyone's favorite albums presumably yeah. 
and that was a that marked a shift in the way that the you know they moved away from kind of more standard forms of you know western the western pop form uh, which punk and along with rock and many other forms had followed and they moved into a much more kind of you know polyrhythmic you know uh, form of uh, african music making uh, in which there wasn't there weren't all these shifts between uh, chord chord structures amongst anything else um, so yeah, but you're right. This was like this was absolutely the the list is very, is very self conscious um, and very really quite specific and very interesting. Uh, and there was this kind of great um, interview that Tina Weymouth gave to the New Yorker uh, that came out in 1982, and I did kind of, kind of cite in in the last book, and I will quote it again because I think it's kind of re- clearly relevant to what we're talking about here. And she said, in the old jazz style, everybody would be playing. Then one person would solo, and that would create the excitement. We take the opposite approach. Rather than someone stepping out and playing a top line, we use the dub style, where the featured instrument is simply barred. Um, so one, <laughs> I mean, one, one. I, mean, for, I don't know. You might want to say a few things about this, but uh, but one one final thing I want to say is that this guy Adrian Ballou who was was you know brought in as the guitarist on on this album um, i think his influence ended up being kind of con- constrained i didn't mention that um stephen stanley who was a, the, a jamaican producer from 1970 been working from 75 onwards and uh, produced black uhuru um stephen stanley who and, and he worked on he produced this album he didn't apparently like Adrian Ballou's kind of uh, distorted guitar solos, distorted guitar solos, um, and he erased a lot of them. Um, so, and and apparently Ballou also uh, said he co-wrote a co-wrote a number of the songs on the album, but uh, his name didn't appear on any of them. And he says that when he he sort of inquired about this, he was he was kind of blanked or ghosted. Um, but whatever the intricacies and maybe politics of the recording of this particular album was interesting is that figure of the kind of you know the guitarist who is who's taking up quite a lot of attention on a, a lot of rock records and is introduced into this recording studio then gets kind of taken out of a lot of the final uh, recordings um, in order to create this kind of this sort of opened up dub style that this this track uh, captures really beautifully all right I think we should move on. That's really, I mean, I could talk about that record all day and I will if I say, try to say anything more. <laughs> so let's play us another track. Okay, yeah, I'll try and do this one really quickly. Uh, I'm going to find, yeah, it's Chippies Like This. Um, so let's hear Like This. Like this, like this. It's really just to make a very obvious point that in one of the things, and it's just one of the things that happened in Chicago in kind of 1984 and 1985, is that a group of, of would-be musicians, most of most of whom didn't have a formal conventional uh, music training, couldn't play with a deg- uh, any musical instrument with a degree of proficiency, started to make music for the 
these these two uh, venues, in particular the music box where Ron Hardy was playing, but also the power plant, uh, which was Frankie Knuckles' second venue uh, in Chicago, where he moved after the warehouse closed in, in 1983. Um, they, and the way that they made these records was to draw on cheap analog equipment that was often being discarded in favour of more newer and more expensive digital equipment. Uh, and and using this this quite basic but very propulsive uh, warm sounding uh, technology um, to create these tracks and and the result that came out kind of became this intensified expression of what New York City remix culture and Jamaican dub culture was already doing. There were these incredibly stripped down um, recordings. And like this was one of the most powerful and one of the most forceful to to circulate on this kind of scene, and it's interesting. I mean, there's you know the 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 amount the de- the degree of technical skill that's required to make this record is isn't very developed or isn't highly developed, uh, and yet it had an enormous impact on the kind of Chicago uh, house music scene, and you know arguably had this kind of you know together with this other group of records that came out in this period. You know, you know, went on to sort of in, in in all sorts of ways. Of course, went on to change the world. I think, like as we've already said for a number of records, what's going on here above all kind of things is, you know, it's a process. One could say of subtraction, but you know, even more, it's just really valuing that process of minimalism because um, nothing is being subtracted here. It's not as if Chippy or any many of these other producers are taking something and remixing it and then boiling it down to some, you know, key constituent and powerful elements. They're starting these tracks from scratch. They're doing on very basic equipment. And they realize that early into whatever they're making, it already sounds really, really compelling and very original and powerful in this particular moment, it should be added. Um, And so they kind of almost leave it there. But again, we have this kind of, you know, we have this, once again, this emphasis on the dub and the drums. Uh, sorry, the bass and the drums, which is again evocative of what's going on in Jamaican dub. But again, it's something that's very much recorded for a, a dance floor that wants to move along at uh, basically 120 beats per minute, which is what uh, Chicago, like New York before it was 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 really doing. Um, and there's a reference in there as well. The bass line is a, a replication of ESGs or re- replicates. Uh, the baseline in ESG's Moody, which is a fantastic oh, yeah, record. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so it's just you know, so so there, it does understand. I guess we could also say that house music, from a very early stage, does explicitly understand itself in relationship to disco and the kind of the the um, convergent hybrid sounds that kind of then broke through in the post-disco era in the early nineteen eighties. But uh, house music is often kind of nodding in that direction. It does understand the power of disco. Um, so in that sense, it is kind of sub- subtractive, I suppose. Yeah, well, I think well, it is very obviously very dub-influenced, and it's a really uh, compelling record. I, f- I forgot how much I like that. All right, so Sandy's Notice Me came out in 1988. Um, and I had to kind of recheck this, actually. The, the, the version that became very popular in particular at the Loft, but I think it was a popular track on the New York scene in, in general, uh, at least a scene that was kind of very self-consciously focused on dancing to the selections of a DJ. Um, the mix that became popular there was the Notice the House mix, which is the first track on the B-side. Oh, 
produced by Robert Robert Clavillis and David Cole, who were this kind of this um, you know already semi legendary DJ and keyboard duo that then really did become this kind of legendary house production team. And this is one of their early mixes. I think uh, the, well, the vocalist is is Sandra Casamas, um, and I think uh, the name San Sandy is actually pronounced San Sanday, so I've got that wrong. But anyway, she was a native of, of South Florida, very Latin influenced in part through that Florida con, uh, connection. The record came out on um, what's it called? Disco, I think it's called Disco Fever. Um, Sal Abator, I'm forgetting how to pronounce his surname, but um, it was a key figure in the kind of you know uh, Bronx uh, uh, scene and in releasing labels and running a, a club where a lot of early kind of DJs were influential. Anyway, it was on his label. Uh, I'm really sorry for, for momentarily forgetting the surname. Uh, I'll try and look it up uh, while you're selecting the next record, maybe. But anyway, this is just a really just f- notes the extent to which dub became, you know, uh, ingrained in uh, house music. Um, around the late 1980s. And this may be much more explicitly than like this. This record really kind of goes into a, a very over dub aesthetic. Um, it's elongated, it's elongated, but there's a lot of there's a lot of reverb and an awful lot of echo. And the sense of this kind of of a game of hide and seek taking place. Um, I mean we've already noted in a pre- in a previous episode that dub is quite playful. Uh, especially Lee Scratch Prairie brought that element into dub. And here, although this is quite a serious record, there is a sense in which you're in a very kind of psychedelic um, environment in this record. It's kind of, it's an all, you know, that the record itself is, the, is creates a sense of space as well. And within that, much more overtly than we'd seen previously in a lot of house music, they have these very, very explicit references to Jamaica. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it is very, it has that kind of druggy sound, which people associate a bit with dub and it's kind of aesthetic of disorientation. And this was my favourite kind of music. This was my kind of favourite music for several years from, in particular, when I started to go out regularly in the early 1990s, when I really started to hear this music. This was this kind of electronic, very dubby, quite, quite you know, transcendental or, or experimental, strange kind of tracks that kind ilk were very appealing to me and uh, yeah yes. Dave, Dave David David didn't play loads of kind of Jamaican dub reggae but he did he, this was a big rock classic he played loads of this sort of stuff I mean if anything I, it's something I used to struggle I suppose maybe I still do to sort of explain to people who in who hadn't been to the parties we were putting on with David in London, that honestly you were going to hear more of this sort of thing than you were going to hear Sal Sol <laughs> like over the over the course of a night. Yeah. Not not necessarily at the peak when the room's at its fullest, but if you turned up at five and were there all night, like you'd you'd hear more of this and you would disco. Um Well David so, yeah, loved to play really this. Trying. David also did love to play this kind of these deep transcendental, some almost quite introverted tracks in the in the middle of a party. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know, yeah. the what he thinks sort of as the sort of second bardo. Um Yeah, that's true. So. We wanted to play some music which is representative of the impact of dub and dub production techniques on British dance and dance adjacent movements 
music at the end of the 80s and the very beginning of the 90s. And we're avoiding the most obvious reference point here, which is early sort of proto-jungle, although we've played that before. And that was really more influenced. I mean, there was a dub influence, but it was more directly influenced by dancehall at a time when there was a bit of... I mean, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people involved in those kinds of musics would have a pretty clear sense of themselves as identifying with either one or the other, with either dancehall, which was a relatively new thing, or, and, or with root and dub, which were by that point quite well established and quite had a quite strong sense of their cultural identity. And it's striking to note that it's at this moment that dub aesthetics, quite obviously dub aesthetics, are really becoming extremely mainstream to musical production. So, a track that everybody will be familiar with, uh, at Primal Screams Loaded. So that is the track that really established Primal Scream. Having been a sort of fairly minor indie rock band, it re-established them as an iconic band of this wave of popularization of rave culture, of ecstasy culture in Britain at the end of the 80s. It was That was the production which really uh, made Andrew Weatherall a household name, uh, in certain households anyway. Uh, famously, he famous. I mean, it was very, and it was a real shock. This record was a huge shock to the sort of indie post punk indie rock fans of Britain because it was presented as a remix of a Primal Scream track, and indeed, it was a mix of some track they had recorded in the studio, but it clearly bore very little relation to the song they had written and performed in the studio. It was entirely kind of cut up, re-edited, had loads of sound effects put onto it. You know, there was this strong sense of an ideological division between people who were into rave and dance music and people who were into indie rock. And so Weatherall notoriously in an interview said he had not listened to any of Primal Scream's earlier records and had no intention of doing so <laughs> before <laughs> before this was before this was recorded. And uh, and Weatherall is an interesting figure. Again, if you listen to his solo work from or, or the work released in his own name with other collaborators in the mid nineties, it's quite clear that he is part of this generation of producers who really think of themselves as dub artists or that what they aspire to be is dub artists before anything else and this is a really interesting example of that this is a sort of yeah i don't know what you would call it sort of pop dub record for a um broader audience i mean i'm not i don't really like it that much this record i never liked it really liked it like i didn't really like it when i was a post-punk i used to call myself an unreconstructed post-punk up until about sort of 91 and then once i got into raving and got interested in dance music i still didn't really like it and i didn't i didn't particularly like it and i still don't particularly like it because i can see how it's a sort of genius piece of syncretism but i still think i also think it's sort of neither one thing nor another and it, it sort of feels like it is a record intended to be palatable 
to people who like the Inspiral Carpets, you know, but I um, would never really want to listen to like Lee Perry or Sandy or something like that. And I was sort of quite conscious of being someone who had been sort of a punk. And I was quite, also quite excited by House and Techno. And I, I didn't need, I didn't need my dub bass lines sugar coated with a sort of, um, this sort of pseudo gospel rock. <laughs> so I've never, I've never it's probably just the fact that it was one of those records that we've all I mean most people have most people of any age will have one of these records that you just got so sick of hearing in your first year or two at university everybody's house you just never wanted to hear them again but um there it I have to admit it's a classic and you know my friend Cedric played it at a Beauty and the Beat party last week and it went down extremely well I can see why people love it I just I objectively I like it actually I just personally I can't really get with it but for our purposes here it's completely fascinating that this huge hit iconic hit record which isn't usually talked about as a dub it's talked about by kind of music critics and it's part as part of popular memory it's thought of as like a, a rave record a kind of first generation British first wave British rave record but to all intents and purposes, production-wise, musically, sonically, and in terms of pace, it is a dub record. They were Manchester. They were Manchester. Am I getting mixed up? I know. Primal Scream they from were, Scotland. They were, they, from, were uh, they were from Scotland. Was, they were from Scotland. Okay, yeah. yeah. But, it's, but it evokes this sort of Manchester kind yeah, of no, aesthetic, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it, uh, it in it which you have was. all these, you know, this kind of, kind of rock, you know, rock musicians, basically, who get sucked into going to places like the Hacienda and taking some MDMA and have this transformative experience and all of a sudden want to be able to record music that's danceable. Uh, so it seems to come out of that, that uh, yeah. meeting. Well, they were going so to Shoom. Why... Primal Scream were going to Shoom, right, okay. the, the, the okay. London, yeah, Danny yeah. Rampling's Acid yeah. House yeah, Club. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that will make sense. So they, oh, you're right, though. This is it's a, good, it's a very good point. that uh, It gets to be understood in terms of kind of, you know, rock music becoming danceable rather than, using dub elements in order to kind of make that meeting sort of you know happen or to kind of to facilitate it really to become something that you know or become something at least that is is present within that new aesthetic <clears throat> okay so the real in some ways the culmination of that moment uh, and and a, the, and also a moment when a dub really became explicitly central to the mutations of british electronic music at the time uh, was a uh, was the year after that i mean that came out in 1990 and the year after that probably one of the most surprising and still to this day in some ways one of the least explicable hit records um in british pop history was the orbs the orbs um, adventures beyond the ultra world on the back of their hit single little fluffy clouds uh, the orb were this very interesting sort of experimental electronic group. I mean, famously, Alex Patterson, the main guy in the orb, had been the DJ in the chill-out room uh, of one of the early London rave clubs and was sort of credited with inventing the idea of the chill-out room. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But he would, and he developed this whole aesthetic of playing all these earlier ambient and electronic musics, lots of Eno, lots of minimalism, to all of these people, mostly sort of music industry people, I think, a lot of them, um, who were off their heads on MDMA or, or weak acid in these clubs in the late 80s. And so the orb sort of um, came out of that. And the orb were 
associated with this genre, which was widely touted in the British music press for a few months as the thing that was going to be the sound of the 1990s. And it was what they called ambient dub. And this is a really interesting example. This is probably the most famously and obviously dub-based version of that idea produced by the Orb. This is one of the tracks from their album, the Orb's Adventures Beyond the Ultra World. This is Earth Gaia. I'm going to sound really down on all this stuff because I don't. It was hugely important. I was like a first year at university, and it is a fascinating record. The Adventures Beyond the Ultra World. I mean, it is a fascinating <clears throat> record. It's also it's full of these samples, musical samples, and sort of voice samples. And it's the last moment, just as Public Enemy and other golden age hip hop groups in the states are kind of perfecting the use of effectively sort of tape collage as a popular aesthetic. <clears throat> the Orb are really the great exponents of that, and some of the other so-called ambient dub groups, like uh, Banco de Gaia, were doing the same thing. And then, for the same reason as happened in the states, they all had to stop using all these samples because. <clears throat> You know, a series of Supreme Court decisions in the States basically in- introduced an incredibly prohibitive regime against the use of musical sampling. And so the Orb never really recovered musically or commercially from the fact that they had to just make their own electronic sounds instead of weaving together these intricate tapestries of samples and, and beats and sounds. <clears throat> and I think the same can be said of Public Enemy, sort of interestingly. Um, so... So that is really kind of interesting. And, but I always sort of, I sort of felt at the time that there was, it was this attempt to, it's a, in a way, it never quite works. The, the marriage of British psychedelia, you know, they're really influenced by people like Steve Hillage and Brian Eno, <clears throat> what I would describe as sort of British experimental electronic psychedelia and marrying that with dub reggae sounds on paper like a genius idea sounds brilliant but somehow it never quite works and it never quite works because psychedelia is a sort of aesthetic of maximalization it's you you know it's more 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 it's it's the endless intricate complexity of the fractal dance of the energy spirals and the aesthetic of dub ultimately is not about that yeah, the aesthetic of, of weed is not actually about that. It's something else. It's about a kind of mesmeric minimalism. And those things, they can go together. They can come together. And dub itself has produced, especially I think some of the sort of jazz dub that we played last time, has organically produced its own kind of fantastically psychedelic iterations of itself. But the attempt to marry that sort of electronic ambient aesthetic with a, a, a dub reggae aesthetic i don't think it ever actually worked properly it produces some really fascinating oddities which we can still hear from that moment but somehow those aesthetics don't quite gel i think hmm. i don't know they gelled for me in the early 1990s like 
I, I loved coming back after a night out dancing and putting this kind of this this album in particular on. Uh, just seemed to provide the you know the perfect kind of you know memory of what had just been, along with a kind of you know just a kind of yeah, obviously just a kind of wanting to to you know just get into a, a much more chilled out, uh, relaxing, mesmeric kind of you know some less communicative mode, I suppose, more introspective. Uh, I mean, David, I've never quite been sure. I think it was this album, but um, I think more. David really, for a period, David absolutely loved the all. Uh, but so I think that might the think, fluffy clouds, didn't he? No, he Did loved he, the. He, no, he loved the album. There was at least this album. He would play. I don't know quite at what point, but I know he played a lot. People, numerous people, several people told me he'd play a lot of Orb. But I think one. I think what you're saying is interesting uh, because I don't listen to this anymore. And David, in all the time I sort of really knew him, prop, you know, knew him from the late 1990s onwards. You know, I never heard him play any record other than indeed Little Fluff, that remix of Little Fluffy Clouds. Um, and it's not a remix; uh, it's just the track. Oh, is it just? The, I, well, yeah, there's one specific. The re- there's it's one. Just, the, it's the twelve inch. It's just there's, the 12 there's inch. numerous mixes on that twelve inch, uh, and he liked one. Okay, of them. that's the only one I ever. Remember. He liked the Joe. What's the Joe? I forget the, the Joe. Per, 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 anyway, Joe Pally or something. Called. There's a there's a specific mix he likes of that, and which is it's great. But what's Coming back to the point I'm trying to make is that yeah, I think you might you maybe you're right, um, or maybe there's something at least in what you say because this stuff hasn't doesn't get played as much now. Uh, it doesn't get played anything like as much now. It hasn't kind of it hasn't uh, endured or survived in the way that many other records from that era have. Um, so maybe ultimately there wasn't something about it that uh, there was ultimately something about it that didn't didn't entirely work. But I, I do remember really loving loving this album in particular and i really enjoyed kind of starting to re- re-listen to it again yeah, yeah my i mean my experience i mean it was the record everybody listened to you were supposed to listen to coming back from a rave and you were supposed to listen to if you were tripping and i just me and my friends we were very conscious that it just it, it was fine but it wasn't a patch on like the the, the miles davis records we taped off some of our some of our mates' dads, for example, it just didn't have the same. It didn't do the job it was supposed to do as well as they did, and I think it's very, st- it's very self-consciously trippy and ambient in the way that Miles Davis, you know, isn't. I mean, it's obviously, I would say, yeah, I know that's the thing. Yeah, it's yeah. so contrived. It's so contrived in its trippy yeah. ambience. Um, it's, it's contrived in its trippy ambience. It doesn't. It does. It's not great to trip to in the way that Miles Davis actually is. I think. I think it's too heavy to actually trip to. Uh, it's also meant it was very much designed to come at the end of whatever has happened. I thought. Well, that's true. Well, it was designed for a very specific state of mind. You're right. It wasn't really designed for people tripping. It was designed for people at the end of an MDMA experience, smoking the kind of very, very heavy hash, which was the normal kind of weed you could get in Britain in those days. That uh, was it was completely designed for that. Actually, that was it, that's and that is the state it was designed to facilitate and, and be appropriate to. Which is interesting to think about, I think. 
Um, well, anyway, the, so the orb and the orb, I think, represented, I think, a really fascinating transition, if you like, between the 80s and the 90s. In some ways, you might see the orb, although people at the time thought it was the music of the future. In a way, I think it, it's sort of the end of the 80s and the, and the and a version of the 80s within which dub and reggae are these really central musical reference points in British music. After this, dub and reggae are going to remain important reference points, but they're always going to be in a sort of conversation with house and disco and um, hip-hop. And techno as well, yeah. Yeah, techno, absolutely. So... All right, that's it. That's enough dub. That's enough on that. Next time, we are well, it's do... not a, it's not enough dub, but it's all we've got. Yeah, we're never for. talking about dub again. We're done with it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> next time we are going to finally talk about Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, and we are also planning for patrons to record um, an episode or two on heavy dub theory. Uh, that should have an echo on the theory. <laughs> should we say, let's just say heavy dub theory. Theory, together. theory, okay. theory. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've, we've already done this joke. It wasn't funny no, the first I time. I don't think we can do it in <laughs> enough time. All right. Thank you very much for yeah. supporting the show. Thanks so much, everyone. Uh, if you've got the means, support us on Patreon. You'll get that heavy dub theory episode, not to bet other stuff. If you don't, if you've got time, please leave five stars for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever. It helps people find the show, as I'm sure you're tired of podcasts telling you. And if you don't have time for that, don't worry. Please just enjoy the show and keep coming back for more. Peace, love, unity, respect. <laughs> and uh, Tim, have a great week. You too, Jim. Thanks, everyone. Uh, see you in a week or two. Woo!